We have spent the last decade in court over these issues, and Moore v. Harper was kind of the culmination of that. It's a great victory, but on the other hand, it's not going to change things for us in North Carolina. We have a gerrymandered legislature. The legislature is going to redraw maps. In our system here in North Carolina, the governor does not have veto power over redistricting maps. It, it will be a long struggle because we have to convince the legislature to perhaps behave differently, more honorably, more fairly. And that takes a lot of citizen engagement. Welcome to Politics is Everything. I'm Kara ong And I'm Kyle Kondik. We have a very special episode in a 6-3 ruling in the case Moore versus Harfer issued today, June 27th, 2023. The United States Supreme Court has rejected an extreme version of the so-called independent state legislature theory um, that would have posed serious challenges for the conduct of elections and would have allowed state legislatures uh, to engage in election subversion, something that was attempted in 2020. But joining us is Rebecca Harper. She is a citizen activist who cares deeply about free and fair elections. And she was the named plaintiff in Moore versus Harper and also in the two prior cases that led to Moore versus Harper, Harper versus Hall and Harper versus Lewis. Becky, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So this is a big day and you've been working on voting rights, fair maps and fair elections for a long time. Um, I wonder if you might start by just sharing your emotions as you learned of the Supreme Court ruling. Well, it was a very exciting day. Um, uh, all of a sudden, I started getting lots of messages, and they didn't have to do with work. So um, I had to run and turn on CNN and start scrolling through my phone uh, to, to get the gist of it. But um, we're certainly very, very excited by the ruling today. and. Um, uh, yes, we, we've been on the edge of our seats for really the last few weeks, knowing that um, the Supreme Court was ending the near, the, you know, coming to the end of its term and uh, they were going to do something. You know, there were, a, it seemed like there was just like a really wide variety of possible outcomes here on this case, maybe even more so than your typical Supreme Court case, because, you know, one of the possibilities, as I understood it, was just that. Um, the court just wouldn't actually issue a ruling. You know, maybe they would they would say something about it, but they would say, "Oh, well, because the North Carolina Supreme Court event basically reversed itself on the um, you know on the gerrymandering case in in that state that they you know they wouldn't say anything." So, you know, I guess how did the decision itself today maybe match whatever whatever your expectations were, or maybe you didn't have any expectations because there was so many. Again, like I said, there's such a wide variety of possible things that could have happened. There were a wide variety, and. I'm not an attorney. Uh, I'm I'm a real estate agent. So, you know, I, I am a citizen activist. I've been involved in this for a long time. But, um, you know, you know, I, I can't uh, listen to the arguments with the expertise of someone praying in the law. Um, about a month ago, uh, Common Cause North Carolina, which is the group that I'm affiliated with, um, they had me film three little vignettes. We win, we lose, it's a draw because we didn't really know how it was going to go either. And they kind of wanted to have some film in the can uh, to use, you know, whatever happened. So um, 
There was also, um, after, you're probably aware that in Harper v. Hall last year, our North Carolina Supreme Court ruled in my favor and ruled that the maps that had been uh, adopted for the 2022 elections um, were, well, well, to the prior elections, excuse me, the maps that had been drawn by the legislature were heavily partisan gerrymanders. And, um, and so the court threw us, hired a master, and we got better maps for the last election. Um, then um, the membership of the North Carolina Supreme Court changed, and the court reversed itself. So they took away our win in Harper v. Paul. And when that happened, the U.S. Supreme Court asked all the parties in the case for uh, to submit briefs about whether or not the case should be dismissed. Uh, was was the case now moot because the Supreme Court in North Carolina had reversed itself? And that was a really interesting uh, process because Common Cause in North Carolina has partners in this legal effort. The Southern Coalition for Social Justice, um, League of Conservation Voters, some other parties whose cases had all been amalgamated into what became Ward v. Harper. Anyway, there was a split among the respondents about whether we should support dismissal or not. And Common Cause North Carolina, and this is the really interesting part, found itself on the same side of the ledger as the Republican General Assembly. And usually we are not on the same side, but but Common Cause North Carolina and the Republican General Assembly, so the, the more parties, argued that the Supreme Court should decide the case. It was a very strange uh, turn of events because Common Cause and the Republicans in the General Assembly, the Harper Party and the Moore Party, were both saying to the Supreme Court, decide this case because the arguments have been made. Uh, people all over the country are paying attention. There's been hundreds of, of uh, amicus briefs filed. And, and this is a case that if you don't decide it now, this issue of the independent state legislature theory is just going to come before you again. So, um, but other members of our coalition argued that uh, they should dismiss and that the case should be considered moot because of what the state Supreme Court had done here in North Carolina. So it's, um, that was a, it was kind of sad that our group of, um, our, our, our group essentially fractured over that issue. But in the end, uh, we're very grateful today that uh, the court did in fact rule on the merits. Can I just ask a, a follow-up for those who disagreed about the Supreme Court ruling? What was your sense of why they did not want the Supreme Court to rule? I think um, they considered it a risk that didn't need to be taken. Uh, you know, you'd really have to interview them 
uh, for further clarification, but I think they felt like um, this court um, has, because of the leanings of this court, that it was just a risk that didn't need to be taken and that a loss uh, would have been uh, really devastating in many ways nationwide. And so, therefore, it was better just to uh, live to fight another day, you might say. But um, anyway, that was not the course. So briefs were filed by all the parties, and then we didn't know what the court would do. Uh, they didn't dismiss it when those briefs were filed back in March. Um, so we've all just been waiting. I guess it's possible they could have waited to this very end of their term and then said, oh, never mind, we're going to dismiss. But the longer that they didn't dismiss, I think we all believed they were going to decide. It seems like, I think maybe to a lot of people maybe weren't following this, it's like kind of a, you know, the the, this this case started as as you know basically to, a, a sort of a, you all were seeking recourse on the actual you know congressional map in 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 uh, uh, in North Carolina and the districts that were drawn and you know it seems like that is going to eventually still become a Republican gerrymander but this case also has addressed a lot of other important issues like this independent state legislature doctrine so like I guess how do you you know how do you feel about that in that. You know, on one hand, um, the the court seemed to you know not agree with this, you know, this, this this suggestion by the state legislature that basically they should have supremacy over federal elections. But you know, the, the maps I guess aren't going to aren't going to look th the, like the way that you might want them to look. No, and it, it is in that sense um, a disappointment for those of us here in North Carolina because um, it's a it's a great victory, but on the other hand, it's not going to change things for us in North Carolina. We have a gerrymandered legislature. The legislature is going to redraw maps. In our system here in North Carolina, the governor does not have veto power over redistricting maps. So we have we have a very powerful uh, legislature. Our legislature is more powerful more powerful structurally than the legislature in many other states. Um, in many other states, the governor would have a veto power. There would be other, perhaps a secretary of state or other entities that play a role in the adoption of maps as well as election rules. Um, our legislature is very powerful here, not just around elections, but in yeah, across the boards. And um, because they have a supermajority, that because the Republicans have a supermajority right now in our legislature, they are continuing to weaken our governor as well as other appointed boards and commissions. They have um, taken away appointment authority. They're trying to restructure the boards of elections, which run the elections in all 100 counties, as well as the state board of elections. So. There is a whole host of things being done right now in the General Assembly to um, give the legislature supreme authority over elect not just the maps, but the whole election process. And, um, and the only way to change that here in North Carolina um, is 
uh, it, it will be a long struggle because we have to convince the legislature um, to perhaps behave differently, more honorably, more fairly. Um, and uh, that takes a lot of citizen engagement and so forth. Um, alternatively, um, we, of course, support passage of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act in Congress, which would address many of the issues that we're still facing here in North Carolina. You just mentioned the advocating for the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, but what are other steps that you see, um, you know, in this ongoing struggle for both equal opportunity and fair representation, but also in in voting rights? Well, um, Common Cause is now focused on a grassroots effort, which is not to say that depending on what the legislature does with maps, is it possible that we would litigate again, uh, depending on what they do and what the facts are. We, we will, we're not foreclosing litigation as an option. We have spent the last decade in court um, over these issues. And uh, Moore v. Harper was kind of the culmination of that. Um, our focus right now is on uh, mobilization and citizen education. We're very concerned about new voter ID rules that are going to be used in uh, municipal elections, which are happening later this year, and then in the general, the primary and the general election in 2024. Um, that is also an issue that has been litigated and and uh, we lost when the state Supreme Court said that the new voter ID rules that the legislature wanted were uh, constitutionally acceptable. So um, that's going to be confusing for voters and it's not clear how that's going to be implemented and the legislature doesn't want to provide any additional funds for voter education or additional funds for staffing the polling places because now voters are going to have to go to one person who checks their ID and then to another person who checks their name on the voter rolls. Just because you have voter ID, it doesn't mean that the voter rolls, the system that we use now, is going to go away. There is no computer integration between those two systems. So it's going to take more staff. It's going to create longer lines at polling places. And there's no money for that. And there's no education for voters about what they have to bring, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. There's a whole other can of worms around absentee ballots and how voter ID is going to be implemented for vote-by-mail people, people who choose to use that method. Um, anyway, it, it, there are many, many issues and, um, it, we are very concerned. So common cause is going to be working at the legislature in terms of advocating for, um, uh, additional voter education funds to, uh, staff polling places adequately for all of this, as well as advocating for, um, uh, new rules around some of these issues. We are also working with our partners on the ground. So we have, I mean, we're basically taking the show on the road. We're, we're doing community meetings, 
the 100 counties in North Carolina. Uh, we're trying to get, we're particularly focusing on counties that are represented by members of the General Assembly who, who live in sort of swing districts, trying to get their constituents to engage and to express their preferences, to contact their elected officials and say, hey, you know, we care about gerrymandering, we care about fair elections, you know, those kinds of things. So it's, it's, uh, it's a long and winding road. So how was it that you became the Harper and Morvey Harper in, and in, in some other cases too? And, and uh, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and also to people who like yourself are not lawyers, but are clearly care about these sorts of issues and are, are you know, involved in sort of the public sphere. Like, you know, would you recommend to someone or, or suggest to someone that if they have a chance to participate in a suit like this, that, that they, they should or maybe shouldn't do that? I, I'm a real estate agent. So about 15 years ago, um, the realtor association that I'm forced to belong to because they own the MLS, um, they uh, raised our dues uh, statewide. And this was done at the state level. They raised our dues statewide um, for uh, uh, what they call issues mobilization money. So they were they were raising dues money and they were um, using it on a political campaign. And I objected to this as a member because I had no choice. And, um, and I thought that this was a violation of, um, uh, you know, that it, it wasn't right. I didn't know what it was a violation of. I didn't think it was right. So literally, I wrote a letter to the board, State Board of Elections, and I said, I'm forced to pay this money, and they're using my money for things I don't agree with, and uh, I don't think this is right. And so um, I got a letter back from the State Board of Elections, and they wanted more information. And that letter literally led to a big deal case. The State Board of Elections decided to hold a hearing. And, and all of a sudden, I had a top-flight election lawyer volunteer, sort of. I did pay him a, a nominal fee because he said I had to engage him. So I paid and he represented me at the State Board of Elections at this hearing. And this hearing became, you know, it was covered by the news media and so forth. And anyway, so what happened at that time is that Common Cause North Carolina and Democracy North Carolina and some of these other good government groups, um, they, they, uh, Filed, they filed briefings on my behalf about how I shouldn't be forced to pay dues that were used for political purposes. And, and that's how I met the common cause people. And, and so I was very appreciative and, and I actually sort of won in, I mean, the board of elections, uh, issued a ruling saying that the realtors had, had done some things they shouldn't have done. And, and so it was, it was all great. And then about six weeks later, the Supreme Court decided Citizens United. And that was the end of that. So then the floodgates opened and money could be used however these groups wanted to use it. So anyway, um, that's how I got involved in Common Cause. And I became a supporter and a donor. And so, you know, I just started paying more attention to these kinds of things. 
And then some years later, they invited me to join their board of directors. And I, uh, I did that uh, about five years ago. And um, so that's how I got involved with Common Cause. Um, my name got on this suit or on the original one, which was Harper v. Lewis. Um, because like many situations like this, they wanted a group of plaintiffs that represented voters from districts around North Carolina. So, so, um, there was a questionnaire that came out, um, you know, and they were looking for plaintiffs again, broadly dispersed in different congressional districts. And I filled out the questionnaire and, um, and then there were interviews and then a number of plaintiffs were selected. And, um, and that became the group that was the plaintiff group in, in Harper v. Lewis. And my name got put first. It's not alphabetical. There were, <laughs> there were other plaintiffs and pre COVID in those early days of the court cases in Harper v. Lewis. People drove from all over the state. You know, we had events in Raleigh and stuff. And then later on, it was COVID. And so that didn't happen. But anyway, um, so my name was put first. I, no one will actually tell me why, but I think it's because I live here in the Raleigh area and I have a flexible job and I was available to do things like this, you know, and speak to people. And so, my name got put first, and here I am with my name on a Supreme Court case. What, what have you learned by participating in these cases? I've learned that there is no easy answer, that um, you, you can win and then you can lose. You know, it's a rocky road. It's a winding path. And, and, and there will always be the next fight, the, the next obstacle to be overcome. There is no, um, you know, you, you, you don't solve the problems and then wipe your hands of it and you're done. So um, I think that, you know, I'm old enough to remember the days when all elected officials across the spectrum made a great show of advocating for voting. Everybody should go vote. It's your civic duty. It's a wonderful thing. You know, teach your kids to vote. Take your kids to the polls. You know, all this. And um, it is very sad that today um, we have very low voter turnout. We have a huge swath of the voting public that is just kind of discussed with the whole process or feels that their votes don't matter or don't count. They're disaffected. They're also, our system makes it hard to vote and that is by design. It's become harder and harder to vote. It's hard for people who don't get off on Tuesdays. It's hard for people who have jobs that are not flexible or kids who need to be picked up from school or those kinds of things. Um, the, uh, and mail, vote by mail has helped, um, but, and, and certainly early voting hours have helped, but you know, there's a, a dramatic effort to cut back on those things now. Um, 
So, um, it's, I, I never thought that we would, that I would be living in a state or a country that, um, uh, is fighting over, uh, the validity of elections and that we have so many forces in our country, uh, trying to undermine or, or discredit the process or, um, uh, you know, make people believe that, that they can't trust the results of elections. All of that is just frightening to me. So, um, and elections, you know, elections are not lost because of fraudulent voters. I mean, do that's, the, the numbers are just so tiny. Elections are rigged when the politicians draw the maps. And, and um, you know, it, it starts before the ballots are even cast. Um, and so um, I want to see elections where there is, there are at least two candidates running in every district where voters have real choices where the outcome is not a foregone conclusion, I think that's what elections should look like. And uh, we have to just keep chipping away at, at obstacles that are put in our place, put, it, put in, in, the, in the place to make voting harder and to mix the outcome by gerrymandering in advance of the ballots being cast. Well, Becky Harper, thank you so much for joining us on Politics is Everything and for sharing your story with us. And we wish you all the best as you continue to fight for voting rights. Thanks so much. So, Kyle, it seems that part of this ruling is not a full rejection of independent state legislature theory. It's a rejection of the most extreme parts of it. Um, and in the dissenting opinion, uh, Justice Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch actually embraced the extreme version of the independent state legislature theory. Um, Samuel Alito joined part of the dissent, arguing um, dismissal of the case on, on mootness grounds, so he did not necessarily embrace the extreme version. Um, but really what this case is doing is upholding um, the long-standing interpretation of the word legislature um, that's used in the elections clause in Article One, Section Four, Clause One, and in Article Two, Section One, Clause Two of the Constitutions. Um, that they're making clear in this case that state legislatures don't just have free-floating power, and it's more of an affirmation of judicial review, as I view it, than anything. So, what do you think are the next steps? Um, that might happen from this case, and and will it change any ways that you uh, will will rate elections? Yeah. So there was a world in which maybe the Supreme Court would have effectively kind of shut out the power of state supreme courts to uh, to intervene in these like partisan federal you know redistricting matters, and they didn't do that. However, maybe they could do that at a future case. And so the state that I'm really watching is Wisconsin next year because so Wisconsin is sort of the opposite of what happened in North Carolina. In North Carolina, you had a Democratic controlled court that flipped to the Republicans in 2022. Wisconsin, you had um uh you know 
they don't run on party labels in Wisconsin, but everybody knows the parties, the candidates. The uh, state Supreme Court flipped from Republican to Democratic in, uh, uh, I believe that was in April. And so the new justice is going to take office in August. And one of the things that she seemed, you know, has talked about doing and the other liberal members of the court might do or, or probably will do is intervene in some way against the uh, congressional and state legislative maps in Wisconsin. Both all those maps are, are believed by many to be sort of biased toward, toward Republicans. So, you know, we'll, we'll see wh- what they ultimately decide to do there. But I guess it's possible that depending on how strong the intervention is and how the Wisconsin Supreme Court decides to pursue that, is it possible that Republicans in Wisconsin could sue and go to the, the U.S. Supreme Court to try to roll back whatever the Wisconsin Supreme Court does? So maybe that's something we should we should watch here. Certainly, Moore v. Harper did not like didn't close the door to the Wisconsin Supreme Court intervening, but it may be that there's new jurisprudence that comes out of Wisconsin that maybe helps clarify. Um, ultimately the state supreme or state high court's role in um in in congressional redistricting matters so you know again i think it's sort of a more like a a stay tuned kind of moment as opposed to a sort of definitive uh um uh endpoint here and again as as you mentioned you know the, the the court did not embrace the independent state legislature theory necessarily but also they sort of left it left it open to that the, the federal courts could sort of intervene in state level arguments that have to do with federal law. I mean, I've seen, I saw, I think it was Rick Hassan, um, compared it to like Bush v. Gore in that, like in Bush v. Gore, there was, um, there was this Florida dispute that ultimately became a federal dispute, um, because it was a federal election. Um, and so that maybe basic kind of framework maybe, uh, um, still exists here. And I'll preface it too, by saying I'm not a lawyer either, but I try try to interpret these things so you know we'll see what happens in wisconsin and, and and maybe go 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 from there but as of right now you know when we do our like house ratings or whatever i don't look at this more v harper decision as like impacting ratings somewhere now again if the wisconsin supreme court makes you know intervenes against the the congressional map and changes the map in some way that's the sort of world in which we would you know we, we would do that Yeah. So just a quick um, add on to there. So actually, the independent state legislature theory is actually rooted in chief then Chief Justice William Rehnquist's um, concurring opinion in Bush v. Gore. Um, So so that's really where there's this embryonic version. Um, He um, argued that the Constitution's assignment of elections authority to state legislatures diminishes state judges power to alter, quote, the general coherence of the legislative scheme. Um, and so then that has been used, of course, in other cases, um, including in 2015 um, in the in an effort to dismantle Arizona's Independent Redistricting Commission um, and then also was revived um, as as part of efforts by Donald Trump and his allies um, to overturn the results of the 2020 election, focusing on um, some specific state legislatures. Um, I also think it's helpful for folks to look at uh, Justice Kavanaugh's writing in this case, um, as as also another, you know, this isn't this is the beginning, not the end, <laughs> um, or it's it's some point, but it's not an end point, <laughs> um, because basically what Justice Kavanaugh says, um, I'm also not a lawyer, but this is my <laughs> this is my interpretation. Um, I don't know what good a PhD is, but you state state courts could decide in state elections, state state elections uh, change the outcome at the state level, and then bring it back to the federal courts, right? So 
um, uh, essentially, as long as the laws are changing at the state level first, <laughs> um, uh, that will then open the door to taking it back to the Supreme Court. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm glad you brought up the Arizona redistricting case from several years ago, because, you know, of course, the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court has never really for, forbidden partisan gerrymandering. They suggested at times that maybe they would consider it or they were looking for a framework. And the, the Rucho v. Common Cause case from 2019, kind of this court kind of closed the door on that. However, there also are other ways in which states have tried to figure out a way to sort of tame the, the worst impulses of gerrymandering are to make come up with these sort of nonpartisan or bipartisan commissions. And so Arizona has a redistricting commission um, that, uh, you know, I'd say in the, 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 the iteration from the last decade, their map was probably a little favorable to Democrats. This time, the map may be a little bit more favorable to Republicans, but it's not like a partisan gerrymandering, you know, weapon or, or what have you. And, you know, it could have been that a, a stronger or, or sort of a, 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 a more kind of intense ruling and more be Harper, like maybe they could have went after all that stuff. They could have went after right. state judicial interventions and in, in congressional redistricting. They could have went after commissions. They didn't do that. Maybe yeah. a future decision will, but for the time being, um, they haven't done that. And so, and so in this, you know, just like the, uh, you know, we had the, 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 the Allen v. Milligan court case recently. Um, that sort of, you know, preserve the, you know, section two of the Voting Rights Act and the way that you would, you know, make arguments about whether there should be creation of a majority minority district. It seemed like the Supreme Court could have said, hey, we're not going to do that anymore. Just like maybe it could have said in Moore v. Harper, hey, these state Supreme Court interventions against um, what states determine it, or courts determine to be partisan gerrymandering of of, uh, of congressional districts based on their own state law. You can't do that anymore either. The court didn't go there. So now we have to see like, you know, maybe again, Wisconsin maybe is the next test here. And maybe that will lead to another important Supreme Court case that maybe we'll be talking about this time a year from now. Um, so in, in, in some ways it didn't, you know, just like the Allen v. Milligan case, this one kind of, uh, it, it almost like it, it's almost like it preserved the status quo and sort of how we understand these things as opposed to breaking new ground. So stay tuned. I think we're, I think we're just going to be seeing more of these kinds of cases. Um, because again, you know, in, in the absence of federal judicial intervention, there are lots of states that are, or state courts that are, you know, trying to use their own power to intervene in certain ways on, on gerrymandering. Um, and so it looks like they're going to be able to continue to do that, at least for the time. Because politics is everything. That's right. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Whaley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at center number four politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.